We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, so, so yesterday we had extensive discussion about the idea of kitab, uh, about taqwa, and, and the, idea, the goal is to develop taqwa. And then from there we had an understanding of the nature of tests in this life, that every test in this life is actually a doorway through which to get closer to Allah, inshallah. Now in the next subsection, and so I'll just type this in the chat box rather than write it out. So in this next subsection, ayahs two through five, which we've started, are attributes of the people of taqwa. Meaning, if I have taqwa, then I have these six attributes. And there are other attribute listings of the people of taqwa. This is just one of them. And they overlap with each other, but they are also different. And so here, if you have a, a Quran or a Quran translation right in front of you, you can literally see the attributes and I'll type them all out. They, uh, they have belief in the unseen and we'll go through each of these. They establish Salah. And this is all basically from Ayah 3. They spend of what we have bestowed upon them. They believe in the revelations sent to uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him. They believe in the revelations sent to those before him. And last, they are certain of the hereafter. Now, <clears throat> jumping forward to Ayah 5, what does it say about the people of Taqwa? It says the people of Taqwa, so in Ayah 5, people of Taqwa have guidance and success. So the first question is, what is the success of the people of taqwa? The word in, in Arabic for, for the people of taqwa is muttaqeen or muttaqoon. What is the success of the people of taqwa? How would you answer that question? Anybody? Part of it is an easy answer. A pleasure of Allah. So pleasure of Allah, Tawheed, all of these things would be included. Fundamentally, on the other side, it's paradise. And then on this side, what would be the, uh, the, uh, the uh, success of the people of Taqwa? For lack of a better term, we would call it contentment or gratitude, as well as an understanding of how the world works, an understanding of how reality operates. So the success of the muttaqi, singular, is in dunya, it is gratitude and understanding of how life works. And then they act accordingly. Gratitude to Allah. And the other side is paradise. 
and in both regions, this is the point that you made, Chorom, uh, it's Ridah. And what is Ridah? It's to be happy with Allah, to be satisfied with Allah, to be pleased with Allah. Therefore, Allah is pleased with you. Now, the person of taqwa doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're perfect in everything they're doing. They're also still striving for, for personal improvement. But this is the success. And so if we understand that, what we're saying is that this point number one, dunya, gratitude, and understanding of life, we are saying then that part of the success, the implementation of Islam upon myself, a consequence of that should be a type of contentment and inner contentment and inner gratitude and inner, plea, uh, uh, and inner pleasure with Allah. Which then means in theory I should be a nicer person. Potentially even for lack of a better word, a happier person. But now let's go through these six attributes uh, in detail. And again, if I'm ever going to fast on all this, please uh, let me know. Uh, you all see the whiteboard, yes? Yes, okay, very good, mashallah. Yeah. So, so I'm not gonna rewrite all the attributes of the people of Taqwa, but if you just think of them as one through six. So, So the people of taqwa are the people who have taqwa, the muttaqeen. One is belief in the unseen. This is the word iman. So iman, I introduced it. And at one level, how do we define iman? Anyone? Easy question. Lost the chat box, so I don't know if people are trying to God is God is causing everything. So even simpler than that, Iman Belief. is someone spoke. Belief, faith. Yeah, who, who was that? Shala. <laughs> random voices. Okay, very good. So yeah, in the in a very simple sense, we translate as faith or belief. I mean, it's literally like right there. Okay. So what is Iman actually? Iman is to have such a level of security that people feel secure by being in your company. So to have Iman it's you have such a level of security that it radiates to the people around you. That is what Iman is. That's very attractive quality, nice. And so Iman is related to these other words that we have in English. So trust, Amana, security, Aman, all come from the same root word. So when we speak in our society of believing in something, it means you're taking it as true, but you may not be able to prove that it's true. Right, that's how we often define belief in our society. When we're translating belief here, it means you're secure in the truth of something. 
So it's a condition of the heart. It includes the mind, but it is a condition of the heart. Then, which is in just about every single Muslim language, unseen, easy question, and perhaps fun question. What are some things that you would include in the unseen of things that we believe in? Anybody? Aliens. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. So, so often I'm waiting to see how long it is before someone says Allah. So I'm, I'm impressed, Jewel, that you mentioned Allah first. Because usually, as Afnan has pointed out, you know, uh, they're often mentioned before, before even Allah. What else is in the unseen? So it could be aliens, yeah, potentially. Past. I'm sorry, say it again. Past. Past. Past is in the unseen, yes. Which then means what else is in the unseen? The future is in the unseen. Future. Okay. Uh, honey, yes. Allah, Salman, Allah, yeah. All which is hidden, okay, definitely. So we'd also include other beings like angels. And then we could potentially include everything else that's beyond the realm of perception. And what else? Other people's hearts. And by other hearts, what I mean by that is other people's intentions. What about the soul? I would include the soul. The soul would absolutely be there too. Mm -hmm. So this is not necessarily in any particular order, but just uh, if we were to simplify it, Allah is in the unseen, and then we have other beings. And so, yeah, most of them the afterlife. Yeah, that would be part of the future. Other beings, and then we'd also have elements of time and location. So that includes the past and the future, includes the day of judgment. And then that which is hidden, like people's hearts. The prophet would be in the unseen. He'd be part of the past, maybe even part of the present. Unless there's a time travel, then. Yes. If, if we can figure out how to, how to, how to get a DeLorean to, to go at 88 miles an hour and then have lightning flash all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Then, I'm sorry, where's Ankara? Then we, we, we can cross those uh, past future. Well, we would see. We'd see if it actually becomes. <laughs> you know, part of the present for someone else. So, so belief in the unseen is what? Iman bil ghaib is what? That you are secure in the truth of these things. Uh, you may feel the need to prove it to someone else, but fundamentally you are secure in the truth of these. Would people like the Mahdi be in the unseen? Anybody who's part of the future would be in the unseen, yes, uh, Isa. And so, Isa, would also be in the unseen, your potential children would be in the unseen as well. Isa's like, hey, hey, slow down. That's not what I was talking about here. Okay, so in any case, the point is, think of everything past, future is in the unseen. And, and literally, in the case of the past, in the story of Yusuf, السلام, at the end of Surah 12, Allah is saying to the Prophet, peace be upon him, you were not there when this happened. This is from the unseen. So history is part of the unseen. 
Now, what then is built into all this? If I'm saying I'm secure in the truth of this, it's saying that I trust that this is all real. Right, this is the point that, that, uh, that I was introducing yesterday, that part of Alif Lamim in dealing with the unknown, or maybe it was the day before, in dealing with the unknown is trust that if I need to find out the known, then I will find out. And that Allah will take care of me. It doesn't mean he won't give me struggle, but he will take care of me. So we can also see how this parallels Alif Lam Mim. Because it, with Alif Lam Mim, I am saying, I don't know what this means, but I believe Allah knows what this means. Meaning there's knowledge beyond my knowledge. With belief in the unseen, I'm saying there is a world beyond my perception. So there is that parallel between how I regard Alif Lam Mim and how I regard the unseen. Alif Lam Mim, there is knowledge beyond my knowledge. And then belief in the unseen is that there is perhaps worlds beyond my perception. Uh, Laith, you raise your hand. Yeah, so since, um, I mean, if we say that we never perceive anything fully, is everything just the unseen? So uh, sense, it would be no? fair to say that everything is an interpretation, which could mean that everything is not fully captured. And the reason I'm using you know, these corny, uh, this uh, complicated language is I'm cautious against saying everything is ghaib. So I am still saying, agreeing with you in the sense that everything might never be fully captured. So it could be that everything is in some ways part of the ghaib, yeah. So effectively I'm saying I'm agreeing with you. Um, I'm cautious, however, to use the word ghaib to apply to it. What do you think? Yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah. perhaps me also literally saying that, you know, I don't have the full comprehension of the ghaib. Okay, so Sorry. go ahead. I heard a voice. Nader. Nader. Oh, Nader, yeah. Um, so, so there's this idea that you're saying that we need to trust that all of the things that you have listed out in the lab are real. How does that um, compare contrast to this idea that we, our faith, our iman needs to be rationalized or that we need it needs to be rooted in um the intellect we need to be able to speak to it uh using the intellect so uh i'd answer that a couple of ways and the primary way i'd say is that some people need that uh i don't think most people need that right so if you're growing up uh in america going through you know the western academy for your education there's probably some amount of rational justification that you probably need for the unseen some amount uh, but i think that is uh not remotely universal and i would say in terms of the experience of muslims throughout generations i would say that's probably still in the minority got it thank you Makes sense what do you think um it makes sense um i mean yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I don't know. I need time to think about it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, uh, I would suggest, I mean, 
you know, that this is definitely part of the outlook of the Chicago big teachers like Dr. Omar and Sheikh Amin, um, that there is some necessary rational component that has to be part of your uh, training of theology, especially realms of the unseen, you know. But even if we question. speak about this, uh, I'll get to you just a second, inshallah. But sure, uh, sure, yeah, sorry. oh no, no. Uh, but even if we think about this, uh, if we think of those articles of faith, we have Allah, we have the angels, we can add the books here, um, and then messengers would also be part of the past. You know, jinns are not part of that list of things we have to believe in. You know? Um, so is it, do I have weak faith if I don't believe in jinns? Not necessarily. Do I have strong faith if I believe in jinns? No, not necessarily either. But what does this allow? It's fundamentally saying that there is something beyond my perception that I am limited. And so it becomes an act of submission. So that shall I go ahead. Um, I think you answered my question. It was about, yeah, like, do you need to accept everything on the list? Or is there wiggle room? Um, you know, there's kind of non-negotiables on the list, but Jin is not among them or, um, yeah, I think you answered that. Right. Yeah, alhamdulillah. And so, so here it's literally, uh, um, you know, believing in the fact of the unseen. That there, are, that there is a world beyond. And so to, to make this point further, uh, back in grad school, you know, I remember a teacher saying that the dominant philosophy of college professors in academia in the 1950s, when he was an undergrad, uh, was logical positivism. So this is Augustine Comte. And log logical positivism is basically saying there's nothing in the unseen. That only what exists is that which is tangible. And so this would be going on the attack against that. Uh, oh, a whole bunch of uh, points in the, the chat box. Let's see. Uh, I mean, if scientists can claim we are living in a simulation or a parallel universe exists, I personally don't think that any of the unseen is super out there, just my thought. So Isa, to make sure I can translate it from undergrad language into normal human being language, you're saying, if I already believe that we could possibly be in a, a simulation, then it's not a far-fetched for me to believe all this other stuff. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Because, yeah. So then you're literally using the logic of Abu Bakr uh, when the prophet came back from the night journey. Because the companion, these the, the the kuffar were saying, can you believe what your friend is saying? And then they explain the night journey and Abu Bakr says, okay, the Quran is more amazing. I already believe this. You know, that these words are coming from the sky. So same type of logic, mashallah. If you don't believe in jinns, does that mean you don't believe in Iblis? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, it would mean that you'd have to have some sort of counter uh, understanding of what is meant by jinns. What about the miracles of Allah, such as those given to the prophets? Are those required parts of belief? Wonderful question. And so what is required is to believe that the word of Allah is true. The meaning of Allah might be a different thing. So the words of Allah saying, you know, we have sent down this revelation. Okay, that's a believe in a miracle. Okay. You have to believe that what Allah is speaking is the truth. The meaning of it might be debated. So did the water, or, or no, uh, did uh, when Moses came to the sea and he hit his staff in the ground and split in two mountains of water, 
what do I have to believe? I have to believe that the narration of the text is authentically coming from Allah. Majority opinion is that it literally happened. And almost unanimous opinion is that it's also metaphorical. See what I'm saying? That believing it's literal can also mean that it's metaphorical. But I have to believe that the words are true. And likewise, Yunus in the whale, same thing. That the passage is, I have to believe that the passage in the Quran talking about it is revelation from Allah. Now, do I actually believe that uh, Yunus was uh, surviving in a whale? I have no problem personally believing in it. Um, but uh, does someone else, uh, are they in trouble if they say this is a metaphor? Not necessarily. But at some point, a person is going to have to decide if something is or is not a metaphor. Like number one, angels. Are they, are they a metaphor or not? Or the revelation of the Quran itself. Because we're saying that's a miracle. Uh, Isa is saying, is this like the prophet in opening his heart story? There's an eye about how Allah and angels open his chest. Some believe it is literal. Others believe it's a metaphor. Okay, so there's no ayah about uh, opening his chest. There's ayahs that are interpreted to be referring to the opening of the chest. Uh, have we not expanded your breath is understood to be ha perhaps be referring to this or just the fact that he's been given guidance and the, the, his chest has been opened. And so same point, that you are believing that the word of Allah is truth, whether or not you understand the meaning of it. Make sense? Uh, Maltzen and Isa. I mean, I, but going back to Isa's earlier point, I mean, even if I don't believe we're in a simulation, if I'm already believing that Allah is sending angels to talk to the prophet, peace be upon him, I don't find it very far-fetched to then believe in the splitting of the sea or the virgin birth of Mary um, um, and all of those things. For me, it doesn't seem to be as much of a, a leap of logic. Why radiate uh, security to others versus merely having it? Okay, so we're saying that the consequence of faith is, is literally that people feel secure by being in your company. And so think back to the whole idea of relationships. That you and I physically are in a limited space. But for example, how big is your soul? Is your soul the size of your body? What if your soul is like this big? And so two people who are sitting next to each other, their souls are crossing over. So, or what if your soul is like this small? If it's possible to even have a size. So then likewise, I think we all understand that you do occupy more space than what you occupy physically just by the fact that you're breathing and you know germs are flying back and forth, corona and whatnot. Uh, and so what we're suggesting is that your Iman is perhaps present beyond the boundaries of your physical uh, boundaries. Uh, Shala, was that the same question or different question? This time it was different. Um, okay, so we need to believe in like, you know, the literal word of Allah in the Quran. But in the Quran, it says we also need to believe in the books that were sent before, right? Um, but in those, then for those books, though, we don't need to believe in them literally because we don't believe that those are directly the word of Allah, but we kind of need to believe in them, or where does that fall into things? So that we'll get to, we'll get to uh, attribute number five. So, okay. belief in the revelation before the prophet, peace be upon him, that we will get to, inshallah. Any other questions about belief in the unseen?
And so what is the one thing I would, I would like you to take from this is that it's a type of security or trust that there is something beyond, which I think for everybody in this room, it's not really uh, a big challenge, but it is embracing the unknown. So you're embracing the unknown as something to have security in. Uh, most of the thing Christian hermeneutics suggests that scripture can be interpreted in four ways, literal, allegorical, metaphorical, uh, mystical. Can we say the same about the Quran? Sort of yes, sort of no. And the difference is that uh, we derive an entire legal structure from the vocabulary of the Quran. And, and so uh, most of what you'd be speaking about, Mohsen, would apply to, to texts, passages that are not necessarily prescriptive. But yeah. Otherwise, in general, I'd say sure. You know, but what I'm saying is that the style that the Quran operates is different in the way the 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 uh, New Testament, in particular, operates. And another way to think about that is most questions in Christianity are on, are answered through theology, and theology is is definitely uh, uh, dependent upon interpretation with all of its variations. And so, so not to get too far off the point, uh, a lot of the isms we have of our society are sort of rooted in either Christianity or a pushback against Christianity, whether we're speaking of, of capitalism, whether we're speaking of socialism, whether we're speaking of feminism, whether we're speaking of, of, of other outlooks. Um, they're often a critique or a specific approach to theology. And so what I'm saying, the Muslim equivalent of these things haven't really actually started to get formed yet. You know, we have a lot of isms that are taking the same ideas and then applying them into the Muslim world, which works, but they're, they haven't come organically from the text as opposed to people finding ayahs to support them. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, if you go to a Muslim therapist or a Christian therapist, meaning faith-based counseling, is nearly 100% of the time uh, just someone who's been trained in secular counseling and now they've added scripture to it. So it is not something that is organically grown from the, from the, from the source material of the tradition. And so what I'm suggesting is that in terms of the interpretation of the Quran, we probably have you know, maybe four different uh, categories of types of interpretation. Okay. So uh, we have a little bit of time. Let's let's get into the second attribute. They establish salah. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that these six attributes are not commands. They're saying that the goal is to be a person of taqwa, and a person of taqwa has these six attributes. And the second one is that they establish salah. So first, what does it mean to establish? And then second, what is Salah? So establishing, what does it mean to establish? Or in fact, let's talk about Salah first. So this is, this is the daily canonical prayers. I remember who I'm stealing that term from. Right, mainstream Sunni thought five times a day, mainstream Shia thought six, uh, three times a day, although in both cases, it's often very, uh, five and such, but here, Salah is an actual thing. But we've spoken before about the word Salah. Anybody remember what the word Salah means? And as some of you are so close to Iftar that your brain not operating at this moment. 
Okay, so it's connection. To connect. Yes. So who are you trying to connect to? You're trying to connect to Allah. How do you perform your prayer? We gave the example, pray as you see me pray, model after the Prophet, peace be upon him. Now, what is what do we recite when we're sitting in prayer? Anyone? Go back and remember how the prayer operates. What are we reciting when we're sitting in prayer in Jalsa? Nobody remembers. Okay, remember? Okay, now, what is that? Like, literally, so we're reciting this thing. What are we actually reciting? We are reciting the conversation, yes, that the Prophet has with Allah. So you, when you're reciting that, you are sitting speaking as the prophet talking to Allah. So imagine that next time you're making the prayer. So this is a greeting to Allah and blessings and goodness. As-salamu Now Allah is saying, peace be upon you, O prophet. So forth and so on. And so the point is now put yourself in that conversation when you're making your prayers. And so that gets a taste in connecting to Allah and connecting to the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then, of course, we spoke about how do you know the prayer times? You look at your iPhone app and it tells you, yeah, it is nighttime. Okay. So you, the the prayer times relate to where the sun is in the sky, how long your shadow is, and then the ideal prayers are prayers that are done with others, and then fundamentally you're connecting with yourself. Right, so all of these. And then I think we had the question way back then at the beginning, okay, you know, how do we prioritize these? If you don't have this, you're not going to have uh, the other four. Although this is the most important, and you can't really separate this from the other ones. But the point is, this is what you're trying to connect to in your prayers. So what does it mean then to establish prayers? What would be different ways to define establishment of prayers? Anyone? I think I've already ex exceeded the maximum brain power I can expect from all you. It's close to the far. Foundation. Okay. Uh, uh, define the uh, what does that mean? Like, let's say, let's say we have a hypothetical person in Malahat, and he has established prayers. What is he doing? Like, no matter what happened, is you know we are, we have to pray. Okay. So we might say, never missing. We're always striving. So isn't that also fall into the command category now? Explain. So establish the prayer, right? Meaning, so before, okay, so, if, so the ayah here is not saying to establish the prayer. The ayah is saying that they establish the prayer. See what I'm saying, Well. 
Yeah, but Wakimu is again like is is a something a, com- uh, a command, right? Fear is not a command. So, yeah, and then Dr. Sra used the very good analogy that you know, if you pray just for the sake of prayer, then you just pray one time or twice. But mm-hmm. if you know why to pray, then you're never going to miss your prayer rest of your life. Sure, sure, inshallah. Yeah. And so all these points, um, you're getting together in one place, you're giving priority to them. Uh, and I think, so I'm going to use a rooted routine. It becomes part of your daily cycle. Now, <clears throat> another point to consider is most of this is individual. So as some mentioned, it's also established at the congregational level. In some capacity, if there is more than one Muslim. And think of this as an ongoing process. So Omar, routine does have some negative connotation that sometimes routine is just mechanical, sometimes is... Uh, give me a different hard. word uh, than routine then. I don't know. <laughs> Regular. Regular, okay, that works. The same meaning, though. Yeah, fixed practice. And we'll just give a bunch of positives here, so it's a positive connotation. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, what are we saying here is that the another attribute of the people of Taqwa, Ahania, that's a good word, it becomes part of your lifestyle, um, is that they are establishing Salah. Now, the final question is, how does this parallel what we said about Alif Lam Mim and what we said about belief in the unseen. So we said Alif Lam Mim, there's knowledge beyond my knowledge uh, that Allah knows that is beyond me. Uh, belief in the unseen, there's a world of perception beyond my perception. How does this connect? So to help answer the question, well- yeah, go ahead. Someone was saying something. Uh, I was just going to say Salah itself. Can we think of it as being rooted to the unseen or connected to the unseen? Or it's a means by which we connect to the unseen? Yeah, I would say absolutely. And, and to help reinforce that point, suppose you made a list of all the steps of Salah, of Namaz, from the very first, whether you're making your attention or you're saying your Allahu Akbar first, all the way until the very last step. Okay, suppose you write down all, let's say, 35 steps. Namaz is, uh, is a word that uh, non-Arabs will use to speak of Salah. So, so Persians, Afghans, South Asians, same thing, literally the same thing. So, so let's say you list out it's 35 steps. What if I do all of those 35 steps in reverse order? Then what? What do you think? So we start by sitting and we say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah to the left. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah to the right. And then make a dua, then Allahumma salli Muhammad, then at-tahiyyat. What do you think? Is that okay? Why or why not? I think I'm going to have to make class more exciting to, to get people more awake in these people classes. It's okay if you don't know. Okay, and I'm saying you know, you know exactly what you're doing. Then you're not following the messenger then. Okay. 
but he did all the same steps. I'm just doing reverse order. And here, to make it even more consistent, I'm in Chicago. Instead of facing northeast, I'm going to face southwest. So I'm still facing the Kaaba. What do you think? Could we say, could we say that the order... Go ahead, Lee. Oh, I was just going to say, could we say that the order has a, a meaning that isn't immediately apparent? So that's essentially the point that I'm making. So we are believing that these steps done in this order, you know, meaning these steps done in this way, has an effect beyond what might be apparent, beyond what I can see. Meaning if I did everything in 100% reverse, more than likely, it's going to count as zero. I mean, imagine you're standing in front of the Kaaba, and instead of facing sajda, facing towards the Kaaba, prostration facing towards the Kaaba, you're facing in the opposite direction. You're still facing the Kaaba, it's just a longer way around the earth. So it could potentially be rude and potentially be a sin, but the point but is that, yeah. Your, feel, right. your, your feelings will be different, though. Your emotional or feelings or emotional, like, like in terms of steps, that's okay. But uh, your emotional attachment or feeling will be different unless you have been doing that since uh, since the beginning. Yeah, sure. Maybe minutes. that's how you've been doing. It. Yeah. Like if I start doing it now today, so my feelings and yeah. Okay, I'm not encouraging you to try it, but yeah. But the point is, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> like it's uh, all over the place. So so the point here is that uh, is that we're illustrating that. What is the parallel between what we're saying about al-Flamin and belief in the unseen is that I'm believing that there is an effect to this prayer in efficacy that I may not be able to immediately see, but I do believe that there is an effect. At the very least, the effect is something that I'll see on the day of judgment, but perhaps even in this life, hopefully even in this life as well. By doing these steps in this way, as opposed to just a haphazard stretching exercise. I mean, that's sort of, if you think about it, that's what in our society we've done with yoga, right? Yoga is actually a type of prayer with recitations and everything. And you do these steps in a particular way, but then we reduce it to the stretching exercises. So it doesn't matter what's, what order you do it in because the effect is on your body. And so Salah is very similar to that. Uh, Salman. I don't know if you're speaking or not. Your hand. Hey, uh, yeah, Omar, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, please. So, uh, looking at this order, is there uh, one way to look at it? Is that when we, uh, the way we do these steps, isn't it? Uh, it shows that we are standing, we are asking for the righteous pathway and everything to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then we go and submit ourselves. And we go down and we submit ourselves in that prostration because the reverse order is showing that we, we are kind of saying that we can achieve it by ourselves by doing the sajda first and then standing up and kind of challenging Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. But by standing and then going down, we are kind of submitting ourselves. I think the order explains a lot to itself okay that that what we asked for he gave it to us and now we are his servants and we are prostrating him and kind of putting our head on onto the floor mm -hmm. so i would agree with everything you've described but then what if we say that okay if i'm going standing and now i'm prostrating further because i'm bowing and now i'm prostrating further because i'm or now i'm i'm 
I'm submitting further because I'm prostrating. So instead of doing two sajdas, what if I do four? I mean, that's even more uh, submission, isn't it? What do you think? Yes. Now that is that is the point. I agree with you that some of the some of this whole thing we may never find out until we are standing over there on the day of the judgment. But yes. But but I think the explanation what you were asking that the reverse order and this what I was saying uh, what I think is it explains it very beautifully that how we are erect, standing erected and then how we go down and shows to Allah that even though we don't see you, but because we ask for all these things and you gave it to us, so yeah. we are submitting ourselves fully to you. So as an explanation, I agree, that's a really nice explanation. I mean, another argument that people give, why do we do two sajdas? We only do one ruku is to, is to show that we're better than shaitan. He couldn't do one, we do two, which I think is a really, really cool explanation. Mm -hmm. But what is the fundamental reason why we do all the steps we do, you know, not adding and not subtracting is because this is what we understand the prophet did, peace be upon him. So uh, it's not all the steps of worship, which is a nice explanation, but the real reason is this is what we understand the prophet did. And so we're just literally mimicking him. You see the difference that I'm making? That the actual submission is not the physical position, the actual submission is mimicking the prophet. Does that make sense? I had to also bring that thing, right? The lesser Virantavalo, what you uh, explain further. So, like the East and West belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And that's why when the, the Qibla has been changed, that is that's more significance, right? For the uniqueness mm -hmm. of, the, of the Muslim following Muhammad. Sallallahu and then uh, the second thing is that you know that uh, the discipline. Uh, the the re, the religion actually the one of the attribute of the religion is that you know bring the discipline mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. So if if something we are going to establish without having a discipline, even in a worldly manner, is going to be chaotic, right? So same rule going to be follow uh, into the religious activities. Like okay. if you see, if it's the army and they are actually marching towards all over the the ground, mm -hmm. it doesn't look any discipline, right? So. Okay. So, so regarding the first part, just so everyone knows, uh, Malahat was quoting um, uh, an ayah. This is Surah uh, 2, ayah 177, which we won't be getting to, but all of you should get to know this ayah. It's a good ayah. Let me see that one and, and the point at the beginning of the ayah is that righteousness is not that, that you face east or west, but righteousness is that you do you know, the following things. It's acts of belief, acts of giving, and then acts of discipline. So uh, that as a, a proof, I don't think is as direct, um, but regarding point number two, uh, in terms of the discipline aspect, uh, I would still suggest that the discipline is, is in the imitation of the prophet, peace be upon him, rather than you know, uh, the, the Qibla or everything else. Meaning the Salah could have been formed with everybody facing in five different directions. And if that's what it was, we would have followed it. Using your example of the change of Qibla, because that's literally what happened, right? The prophet is facing one way, and now he's facing another way. And the actual, uh, uh, the the or the iman uh, that's present is that they're just following, they're mimicking what the prophet did. You see the subtle difference that I'm making? Like all the explanations we're giving are all are all nice explanations, but the fundamental point is that it's an imitation of the prophet. 
so so you're trying to establish the point that the 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 quran and sunnah or the sunnah is is more important in order to connect yourself to the quran i'm saying in the case of salah it's also not right but if you broaden the scope a little bit can we can we broaden the scope and says without having a sunnah the the following the the quran will be going to be a difficult task um in general i would say yes uh but i think uh we'd have to take it on a case by case basis uh and but, but if but if you're actually looking for the salah which is the foundational asset right one of the foundational thing and then you know it cannot complete without a sunnah mm-hmm. so i think if you have a the pillar of islam and then one of the pillar is actually the the salah then i think that a quite percentage is going to be lapse if you don't follow the sunnah so so here's here's where i'm struggling with the point uh so in terms of of what we're given here you have allah and then here you have the prophet peace be upon him and then in between you have gabriel jibril alayhi salam who's delivering everything and the prophet is being given two things right one is what we call recited revelation and the other is called non recited revelation wahi matlu wahi ghayr matlu and so this is the quran here anybody this is the sunnah and the hadith and 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 so the sunnah and the hadith are not necessarily the same thing now what's the difference here is that sunnah is lived and handed down and hadith are in books and the quran is recited and so all of this is essentially manifesting in the sunnah so this is consistent i think with what you're describing malahat right uh i'm just cautious against saying sunnah is more important than the quran but in terms of how you live your islam yeah 90% of it is going to be sunnah no Or i'm not saying that, i'm not saying that the the sunnah is more important than quran mm-hmm. i'm saying that the in order to comprehensively understand the quran yeah we have to follow the the sunnah to the letter okay but how many things are is that it's uh, yeah i'm i'm just i'm just cognizant about the the generalization of this statement too but i'm talking about the the obligations of yeah. of deen right on those obligation to the deen we have to follow the sunnah that's that's the issue that i'm wrestling with and like how to how to argue. Uh, yeah i mean can you have the quran only um, i think i forgot who was hazel in the other class mentioned that she um uh, she went to a masjid um Uh, where they're only following the Quran. Uh in my experience I've never met anyone who truly follows the Quran only. I've met a whole lot of people who follow parts of the Quran, 
Um, and then we'll reject a lot of things specifically if they're found in the Hadith literature, but I never found someone who is consistent in practicing only the Quran. And I've met a lot of people who claim to, you know, and it just, I would test them with various questions about, about the Quran and such. Um, and so, so essentially, I mean, the Sunnah includes the recitation of the Quran, the practice of the Quran, the reflection on the Quran. And so the hard part is, is, you know, like we said, with the generalization of your statement. Yeah. But, but on the same time, I try to establish the fact that in order to reach the, the highest goal, we need to have, we need to have this, the toolkit provided by Sunnah along with us. Otherwise we, we are unable to perform anything. Okay, so, so do this, you know, for, for a future conversation, whether it's in this class or outside of the class, uh, give me specific examples, you know, uh, of how people would push back on your argument. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I don't want to name name here, but, you know, we'll talk. Yeah, it's fine. yeah. Okay, so any other questions about belief in the unseen or establishing the Salah? So the last big point we were making is that we've been given through the Sunnah this particular way to pray, and we believe that it has an effect beyond what we can perceive. We hope that it'll have an effect in this life as well, you know, making the regular prayers and such, but this is an attribute of the people of Taqwa. They have it established. And so you can think of it as established, especially in their consciousness and their practice. But as you can imagine, there's different levels of establishment. So, for example, those of us who have, you know, full-time jobs and meetings and such, establishment might mean that we make all our prayers, but they're in between all of our meetings. Or you can have someone who's deeper, who organizes their day around their prayers. And that is, you know, that might be also a statement of, of, of privilege in terms of what they're able to, to, how they're able to organize their day and such. Uh, and, and so to finish this point off, think of, uh, we're taught that two rakats, two units of nuffle prayer, of the ultra-voluntary supererogatory prayer, are more valuable than the universe contains. And one way to understand that is that just, you know, in terms of scales, if you do two rakats, then look at how, look at how, how, uh, how valuable it is. Another way, a deeper way, is, and I'm just taking this from Rumi, is that you would rather give up the universe than give up two rakats of voluntary prayer. And that is a level to aspire to if you're not there already. That what is Salah overall, the Prophet, peace be upon him. So when we speak about it as connection, the Prophet says that you're in my experience of the night journey is in this prayer. So you are basically, the second you lift up your hands and you're saying Allahu Akbar, you're basically effectively saying for these five minutes, I don't care about anything else in the world. This is my vacation from reality into deeper reality. This is my vacation from life into a conversation with God. Bringing us back to that conversation that the prophet has at the end of the prayer. And so try to have that approach if you don't already, that as soon as these hands go up, then you care about nothing else. Okay.
Any other questions or thoughts? So once again, these are not commands. We're getting attributes of the people of Taqwa, meaning it's not for a hundred ayahs from now where Allah actually says, okay, establish your prayers. We're going to have a hundred ayahs of, of explanation of this and that before that happens. Okay, nothing else? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Bob? So one, one thing I just want to uh, add here that uh, it is actually you known as a changing of Qibla. The Qibla was actually gone to its original uh, physical position, location, whatever you call it. Because initially that was a Qibla. So I'm not understanding the question. So when we say change of Qibla from Jerusalem to Makkah, yeah. so Makkah. It's not actually, uh, I mean, changing a Qibla means like it says, like it was this and then I become that. So it's other way around. It was originally uh, in uh, the, the Kaaba and then it switched to Jerusalem and then gone back. So, so the Prophet, when he was in Mecca, uh, as far as we know, he would face north, he would face the south wall of the Kaaba, which then uh, would be facing both uh, the Kaaba. And, and Aqsa at the same time. And so then when he was up in Medina, then he had to make a choice. But if we say, you know, it's going back to the original Qibla, that's fine. That seems to be more of a semantic difference than in, it seems substantial. You see the point that I'm making? That he was actually yeah. facing both. Yeah, for his time, it's true. But originally I'm talking about uh, even Moses' time uh, and Prophet Ibrahim time, people were like, you know, the, the, the Qibla was in Makkah because Jerusalem uh, Qibla was not there. It came when uh, Prophet Suleiman made that. Uh, I thought it came from Ishaq. I thought it was under Ishaq that it was built. But I mean, that's a that's a historical point. Um, that doesn't change anything here, though. But okay, fair enough. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about anything at all? I just had a quick question. Um, can you explain how the you know how there's the saying of Imam Ali that you referenced at the beginning of the course. Um, I'm just wondering how the diacritical point relates to the rest and connection in particular. Yeah, sure. So, so that is beyond my knowledge. Yeah. Okay. But to, to answer what, uh, uh, so, so to explain the question to everyone else, uh, that, that Ali is saying that, you know, everything comes down to the B of Bismillah, like we were saying at the beginning of the class. He takes it a step further and he speaks of the dot underneath the ba. Yeah. That is uh, uh, Ali level, which is beyond the Omar Muzaffar level. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Alrighty, we will stop here, inshallah. I'll have to figure out more ways to get all of you energized. Uh, we're actually at that point in, in, in uh, Ramadan. Remind me uh, tomorrow, inshallah, to talk about you know, the, the consequence of 10 days of, of Ramadan and what that means in terms of our self-development. Uh, if I remember, I'll bring it up, but otherwise I might need someone else to bring it up. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natu wa ilaik. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natu wa ilaik. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natu wa ilaik. I'll tell the word you all, inshallah, and we'll see you tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.